All right, why don't you turn to the book of Esther, please? The message is simply entitled, The Woman Esther. The book of Esther is a record of God's providential faithfulness to his people. Not because they were better than anybody else or good in themselves. Not even that they were greater in number. But simply because God chose them as his special treasure above all. All people on the face of the earth because he loved them and was faithful to his covenant. This is exactly the testimony of Moses to the second generation that went in to occupy the land in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 10. He reminded them because they were not there when God spoke from the mountain. So he reminds them when they go in. And they occupied the cities that they did not build, the vineyards they didn't plant, all of that. God gave it to them, but not because they were better. So the book of Esther is one of the greatest evidences of God's faithful love to his people while in danger of extermination. So let's study the book of Esther in three ways. We'll look at the book of Esther. First, second, we'll look at the characters in Esther. And thirdly, we'll look at the message of Esther. The book of Esther, it's found in the Hebrew canon. The book of Esther is found in the prophets, the third division of the Hebrew canon. You know, the divisions are different than ours. We've gone over this before. The book of Esther is one of the three post-captivity historical books, the other two being Ezra and Nehemiah. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Greek, and you find this always on commentaries that have a capital L, X, X, the Roman numerals for 70, Septuagint. It makes a seven editions of a hundred verses in the apocryphal call, the rest of the book of Esther. But once again, those are not inspired scriptures. I just give you the footnote that you'll find in the Septuagint. Now, the book of Esther is one of the five roles associated with the Hebrew festivals, which are read on special occasions during the year. The Song of Solomon is read at Passover to commemorate the um, exodus of Egypt, as you know. Ruth, at the Feast of Weeks, as we saw when we studied her, the week harvest. Uh, the wheat harvest, and then lamentations for the fall of Jerusalem, Ecclesiastes at the Feast of Tabernacles, the grape harvest, and Esther at the Feast of Purim, God's miraculous deliverance of the Jews from Haman. Purim is the only feast that is not a biblical feast. In other words, God did not command it. It came in to be at this time in history, the only one. Now, the book of Esther gives accurate details, descriptions of the Persian court, if you've ever read it. It's very clear. When the French excavations were discovered and compared to chapter 4 regarding Mordecai, and how he was before the king's gate, the ruins revealed that the house of the women was on the east side of the palace next to the city, and that a gate led from it into the street of the city, 
They were exact. When they do excavations, they use the Bible to get to those places. They use the Bible to compare the authenticity of what they have discovered. The same archaeological digs confirm the record of chapter 5 where Esther stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king also sat upon the throne in the royal throne in the royal house over against the entrance of the house. And that from there he saw Esther the queen standing in the court as chapter 5 verse 1 says. Now, the book of Esther is the only other book in the Old Testament named after a woman. The book of Ruth is the other one that we've already looked at. Esther is never quoted in the New Testament. Never quoted. But as we'll see, the canon was already established. It doesn't mean that it's not inspired. It's just never quoted. The Hebrew of Esther is much like Ezra, Nehemiah. And chronicles with some Persian words. The literary form has been described in many ways. It has been said to be a masterpiece of literature, a literary treasure. It has been described as a historical romance. Its principal characters are described skillfully, portrayed with a minimum of words, and have been compared to Shakespearean characters. Various literature techniques are apparent. Contrast, irony, humor, poetical devices as you read the book. Now the canon was already established by the New Testament times as you know. The entire Old Testament. That's all there was. When they spoke about the scriptures they meant Genesis to Malachi and the threefold division of the Jews. And though Jesus did not mention or quote from Esther, he did not um, reject it, but affirmed it by the threefold division of the law, the prophets, and the writings. So he affirmed Esther to be part of the canon by those threefold division. Okay? Very important. Sometimes people say, well, that is not found, but are there other phrases, other statements that imply and include that person or that book? It's very important. Now, the argument against the book are as follows. They say there is no mention of God or his name anywhere, but neither is there in the Song of Solomon. So why would you accept one and not the other for the same reason? It's a contradiction. By the way, it's the only book that was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe because of this very reason that some believe it wasn't, but it was, it's been accepted as canonized stated. Even Jesus accepted it within those threefold divisions. Some have pointed out that the name of God, the way it used to be pronounced, Jehovah, that is said to be present four times, being hidden in the acrostic form. The acrostic is the alphabetical alliteration of a book. Um, in the initial and final letters of the succeeding words that I am, that I am, 
uh, found once also. You find this in the first chapter, verse 20, 5, 4, 5, 13, 7, 7, and 7, 5. Remember, the people have um, disassociated themselves from God in disobedience to return back to their homeland, being out of the will of God. Isaiah, Jeremiah prophesied the 70-year captivity and he would set them free and return them through Cyrus. But the majority did not return. God is behind the scene in this providence working. Though his name is not found, his hand is all over this book and the accounts. There is no mention of prayer. They say, but prayer is implied throughout it, particularly when Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth in chapter 4, verse 1 that we see. Prayer again is implied when Esther tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Shushan to fast for her, for she would go before the king to petition for the Jews in chapter 4, verse 16. Prayer would certainly accompany the Feast of Purim as in all other feasts, chapter 9, verse 19. Herodotus, the historian, does not mention Esther, the main character of the book, but gives the name Amestris. Many believe Amestris and Esther to be the same one. The same person. Therefore, they are willing to call the book of historical romance rather than a recognized, inspired history. So you have a lot of um, quote quote higher critics, uh, higher criticism, lower criticism, source criticism, redactive criticism of all the seminaries that that really do not study the Word of God or the books of the Bible. But they look to see where they can find failure or fault. And they write their theses over them. Amazing. i rather see it as a historical romance between God and his people by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's all over the book. Historian Herodotus again mentions Xerxes, his search for a queen after his defeat by Greece. His description of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, both the same person, as well as his character, is consistent with what is known in secular history. His drinking parties, extravagant gifts, irrational temper, the number of provinces that he had, 120 in Esther 1.1, the number uh, not only of the provinces, but the length of his feast, 180 days mentioned in chapter 1, verse 4. The Assyrian records tell us of 69,574 persons present at a 10-day palace dedication, confirming the extravagance and the things that are written in this book. The choosing of Esther as his wife fits his defeat by Greece 
in 480 B.C. and marrying her in 479 B.C., the next year. The chronological order of the book of Esther is between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel returned in 536-37 B.C., as you know. The temple was finished in 516 B.C. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, reigned from 485 to 466 B.C. and was the son of Darius, or Darius, whichever you want to pronounce it, the first. Ahasuerus is introduced to us in the third year of his reign, 483 B.C. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, made his disastrous expedition to Greece and returned from his naval defeat at Salamis in 480 B.C. in the sixth year of his reign. Esther became his queen the next year, the seventh year of his reign, 479 B.C., recorded in Esther 2, 16. Ezra returned to Jerusalem in 457 B.C. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. The book of Esther was probably written around 450 to 455 B.C. It is obvious as you read the book that it had to be someone who had first-hand knowledge and access to the chronicles of Media and Persia. Esther chapter 10 verse 2 gives us such an indication. Mordecai is a good candidate, but some object saying he could not have written the last statement about himself in chapter 9 verse 20 and 10, 2 through 3. But that's no problem. God is able to have others. Paul had amanuensis, right? Secretaries that... He dictated to, they wrote, and it's indicated in some time, in some of the epistles. There's no big deal. Augustine suggested Ezra as the author. When you look at the book, the division of Ezra is real simple. It divides into two parts. The Jews in danger of crises, chapter 1 to 5. The Jews deliver from crisis, chapter 6 to 10. Two halves. Let me give you the purpose of the book of Esther. First and foremost, to declare the providence of God over his people. As you know, in Egypt, God intervenes supernaturally. But in Esther... He overrules providentially by his foreknowledge. In God's providence, we see his perfect control over all the events without violating man's free will. Second, in purpose to declare God's faithfulness to his covenant and the people of God. He that seeks Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. They are his people. 
He swatches over them. That doesn't mean that he is approving of all the rebellion, all of that. But remember, not, not all who say are Israel are Israel. There's a remnant. Third is to reveal a picture of God's people who are out of the will of God. A very clear purpose in the book. All the Jews should have returned, as I said, to Jerusalem when Cyrus gave the decree, but only around 49,897 returned with Zerubbabel. This is recorded for us in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64 and 65. Only 1,496 returned with Ezra um, in Ezra 7, 7 records that for us. So the majority of the nation chose comfort, prosperity, and seeming safety in place of concern, patriotism, and certainty of safety. When I am out of the will of God, I am in danger. When I am in the will of God, though I may be in the most dangerous place in the world, I am safe. The safety is not in the location. The safety is to be in the will of God. There's the safety. Have you ever seen a child that is not in line with the will of his parents? A child's not a happy person. <laughs> when we are out of the will of God, don't, don't, don't seek the happiness that you think you deserve because happiness is an emotion. Joy is what comes from the Lord, from within you, your relationship to God. The book of Esther reveals the hand of God. You can't miss it as you go through it. Second, let's look at the characters in Esther. Esther is the main character of the story. Esther had two names. Chapter 2, verse 7. Hadassah seems to be her Hebrew name meaning myrtle, appearing one time. Her name is of Persian derivation, and it means star, appearing 52 times. Esther was a cousin to Mordecai that is recorded there in chapter 2, verse 7. Esther was told and said to be an orphan. When her mother and father died, Mordecai raised Esther. Esther was lovely and beautiful, it says there in verse 7, um, meaning a woman of character and physical beauty. Mordecai had adopted Esther as his daughter. When you look at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2, Esther was taken as one of the young virgins to Shushan the palace and placed under the custody of Hegai, and God gave her favor. As you know, um, 
Ahasuerus or Xerxes called a Queen Vashti to come and display herself before the drunken feast and she just was outraged and, and because of that the men of the kingdom said listen you've got to put a stop to this our wives get a hold of this we're dead so he replaced her sought out for a new queen verse 10 and 11 Esther had not yet revealed her family or people in obedience to Mordecai's counsel, as Mordecai daily inquired about her welfare. In verse 10 and 11. So he, his faithful love towards her. His um, care for her. From verse 12 to 18 of chapter 2, Esther, like all other virgins, after one year of preparation, was escorted to the king and was given favor by God as Ahasuerus chose her above all others and placed the royal crown upon her head. Once again, something that appears to have no relationship to the people of God, a drunken feast and a drunken king and a stupid declaration and a replacement of a queen. You see God's hand in the midst of here because of what we're going to see that comes to them. In chapter 4, verse 16, Esther is the heroine of the story, risking her life to intercede for her people in order to elicit a decree from, for the Jews to be able to defend themselves against their massacre that is going to be decreed as um, reply to Mordecai. She says, go gather all the Jews who are present at Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will also likewise fast and so I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the key verse to the book. Key verse. Esther petitioned that the king and Haman, his exalted servant, come to a banquet that she had prepared. Then in chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. There are times in your life and mine when you have made some decisions, you've taken some direction. As you're walking with God, trusting in God, seeking Him for direction, and God has guided you and you've trusted Him, but you weren't certain. Only looking back, you saw the hand of God. God does this all the time. Now, the antagonist in the story is a man called Haman. In chapter 3, verse 1, Haman was an Agagite, we are told, descendant of Esau, a type of the flesh. He was advanced above all the princes. Saul, remember, refused to destroy the Agagite, the king. This is the outcome of it in 1 Samuel 15, 8 and 33. 
God through Samuel told him, go destroy the Amalekites completely. And rather than that, he saved the king and the best of the animals. And he tried to blame the people. Now, he must have allowed more than the king to live because the king was destroyed by Samuel. So there were some other guys he let go. Here's their descendants. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine, the Song of Solomon says. Well, I don't commit adultery, I don't commit murder. But what is it that we do, those little things that one at a time will destroy our lives? And so we have to be careful. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, there, Haman was promoted by Ahasuerus above all the princes, but this one Jew would not bow down to him at the gate. Now, as sinful people, that's a problem for us. <laughs> the pride of man. His name appears 54 times in Esther. That's a lot of times, 10 chapters. Haman was told by the servant from verse 3 to 15 that Mordecai refused to heed their counsel. And when he saw his refusal to bow, he petitioned the king with a plan to exterminate a people in his kingdom who were rebellious. And he donated 10,000 talents of silver of his own money so letters were sent out throughout the kingdom to carry out that plan in chapter 3, verse 3 through 15. Here you have a definite crisis, if you will. The hand of the enemies of the people of God to destroy them. Haman again encountered Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. And being a very proud man, his joy and gladness of heart was turned into indignation. Chapter 5, verse 9 tells us. You see, Haman restrained himself, verse 10 through 13 tells us, and he went home to tell how the queen had requested no one but his presence along with the king at the upcoming banquet in verse 10 through 13 of chapter 5. Haman reveals the proud and depraved nature of man here. Listen to verse 13 of chapter 5. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. We must very, be very careful as the people of God that after God has done so much for us and he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness that we allow one little thing to disrupt us so much that we're willing to throw away everything because that one little thing. Wow. Wow. That's flesh. That's sin nature. Reverse it. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam, you can have anything, everything in here, except that one thing. Where is it at? One thing. 
Wow. Now Esther's cousin is the supporting character, Mordecai. Mordecai means little man or dedicated to Mars or worshiper of Mars. All three are given by commentators and translators. And his name appears 62 times in the book. Mordecai was a Jew, the son of J.R., chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. King Saul, Paul the Apostle, both Benjamites, mighty warriors. Mordecai had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives and Jokaniah, also named Jehoiachin, in chapter 2, verse 6. It is grammatically possible that the phrase son of Kish refers to Mordecai's great-grandfather. The most impressive evidence for Mordecai's rise to power and reliable existence is based on the discovery of the name Marduka, equivalent to Mordecai on a cuneiform tablet from Borshipa. And so there have been many things that have been discovered in archaeology to affirm either events or people or cities or different things. In fact, just up north, uh, years back, they discovered the, uh, the name David for the first time up in the northern kingdom by Tel Dan in uh, the city gate. So it's always interesting. They're always finding new stuff. They start building a road and they run into stuff, so they have to cut it off and they dig up some more history of the Bible. He's identified as a high official in the royal court of Shushan during the early years of the reign of Xerxes, this discovery. So it correlates. Now Mordecai sat at the king's gate, chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, one day, and he discovered a plot to kill King Ahasuerus. And he told Esther, and she revealed it to the king in Mordecai's name, resulting in two of the king's eunuchs uh, to be hung. Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage to Haman as the king had promoted him. So therefore he marked Mordecai as his enemy as chapter 3 begins. Do you have a, a Mordecai in your life? Are you a Haman or is it the reverse? <laughs> you see, there are some people that we're just praying they're not going to be in heaven. Maybe because of what they've done to us. Or whatever it may be. And we have to be careful of that. Um, because how did I get saved? By grace through faith. What did I deserve? Absolute hell. So we always have to go back to the foundation, ladies and gentlemen. 
Mordecai would only bow down to one person, his God, Yahweh. No one else. Now, in chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, Mordecai was spoken by um, by other servants about his actions, um, as we have noted. But he refused to bow down. And Haman, knowing this, was filled with wrath, it says, and sought the king to destroy the Jews since Mordecai was a Jew. So rather than just get back to him, he's going to destroy the entire Jewish race. Nothing new, right? Interesting, all the people that tried to destroy the Jews, they're gone and the Jews still here. Interesting. In chapter 4, Mordecai, hearing of the planned destruction, lamented in sackcloth and ashes and cried out in the middle of the city. And Esther's servants informed her, to which Mordecai pleaded Esther to petition the king. A copy of the letter was sent to Esther in verse 8 of chapter 4. A frightening caution was expressed by Esther. The king had not called for her 30 days. And if she entered now and he did not answer her, raising his scepter, so to speak, the person would be cut to pieces, verse 11 says. Pretty dangerous business. And so... In verse 13 to 14, a call to surrender her life to God's providence was sent back to Esther by Mordecai. It says, and Mordecai told him to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That scripture's for you and for me. That we be obedient to God, to be in the will of God, it will be the, the safest we have ever and will ever be. And if not, God's deliverance will come from somewhere else through someone else. God is not obstructed by my lack of obedience. God is not limited nor hindered in his overall purpose and plan for his people. These are also key verses in the book. Now, Mordecai had been promoted by Ahasuerus, as we've seen. And as he could not sleep one night, the king, in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 6, um, he called for the chronicles to be read to him. And he discovered Mordecai's part in the discovery of the attempt of his life by the two eunuchs of the king, Bigthan and Teresh. And um, either he 
just ignored it, forgot about it, or maybe God just allowed it to slip from his mind. Like when Joseph was over the prison and the baker uh, and the, um, the butler were put in prison and he asked them to remember him and God allowed them to forget. Because God's timing is perfect. God is behind the scenes. He's working here. Now the instrumental character was Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was the Persian king known as Xerxes, as we pointed out. He reigned from 485 to 465 B.C. And he was the son of Darius I. Uh, Daniel 9.1 affirms this. And he reigned from India to Ethiopia, a vast empire. His name appears 31 times. His reputation for cruelty and rage was well known. He ordered a bridge to be built over the Hellespont and who, on learning that the bridge had been destroyed by a tempest, a storm, just after its completion, he was so blinded and raised that he commanded 300 strokes of the scourge to be inflicted on the sea <laughs> and then had the unhappy builders who built the bridge beheaded. Not very just, but he has the power, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, right? You do what you want. The golden rule. Whoever has the gold rules. Simple. He being offered the equivalence of $5 million sterling by Pythias, the Lydian, towards the expenses of a military expedition, was so enraptured at such loyalty that he returned the money accompanied by a handsome present. And then, on being requested by the same Pythias, shortly afterward, to spare him just one of his sons, the oldest, from the expedition as the sole supporter of his declining years, furiously he ordered the son to be cut in two pieces and the army to march between them. This guy's not very nice. And God is using him as his instrument. You have a problem with that? <laughs> is he working him as a puppet? Nope. He dishonored the remains of the heroic Spartan Leonidas. He is the one who drowned the defeat by plunging himself into sensuality, offering a public prize for anyone who could invent some new indulgence. He is the one who had the drunken party for 180 days plus seven days more and um, remained um, no one to do, remind no one to do as they will. And then he ordered the queen, Queen Vashti, to unveil herself, as I said earlier, before the drunken crowds, which she refused. So she was taken off the throne in the first chapter. 
Ahasuerus one night, as um, we have noted, could not sleep at night. And as those chronicles were read to him, he discovered the deed. And um, he was um, puzzled that he didn't remember. And he said that in chapter um, 6, verse 1 through 3, at the end there, um, what has been done for this man? They said, nothing has been done for him. Now is God's timing. Okay? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman under the law. Galatians 4.4. 4, right on time. God has never been late for anything. Have you ever read in the Gospels where somebody's calling out to Jesus? He said, wait, wait, I'm late right now. I'll, I'll be back right now. Wait. He's just kicking it. He's right on time. Never been late for anything. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. Ahasuerus then asked who was in the court. At the same time, Haman had just entered to petition the king to hang Mordecai. So they said, Haman. And he told them to let him in. <laughs> in verse 6 down through 10, Ahasuerus asked Haman, what should be done to the man the king wants to honor? <laughs> well, Haman said, who else would the king want to honor but me? Boy, grab the king's robe that he has worn and the horse that he has ridden and have him parade him with a man who's a servant and just, oh, man. <laughs> then the king says, hurry, verse 10, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. That's how quickly a person's life can turn. We think we're in control. We think that we can get away with evil. We think that God doesn't see us. Wow. Ahasuerus had been used by God to thwart the purposes of Haman. After the humiliating experience, Mordecai returned to the gate, but Haman went home mourning with his head covered, only to hear from his own wife and friends that he would fall before Mordecai. Chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. Belshazzar read on the wall, Meany, meany, tekel you farce, and the finger wrote on it. You've been weighed in the balances, you've been found wanting. Tonight you're a dead man. Powerful kings, powerful empires. For God, it's nothing. It is, history is to be read with a hyphen. His story while never forcing anybody to do good or evil. He knows the end from the beginning. That's why he can hold men and women accountable for what they do. Because what they do, they do of their own will. God doesn't force them to do it. If God forced you to do the evil, then how could he judge you for the evil that you've done? He would be unjust. He would be unfair. He couldn't be holy. He couldn't be the God of the Bible. Wow. Wow. 
In chapter 7, Ahasuerus and Haman went to the banquet Esther had ordered, where she had accused Haman before the king. It was on the second day of the banquet that Esther told of the plot against her people. And when the king asked who was this man who would dare such a thing, he said, The adversary and enemy is the wicked Haman. Verse 5 and 6 of chapter 7. Wow. I mean, he's already knows he's dead, dead man. Now he still goes to this banquet and, and, and he just gets more affirmation. I am done. In verse 7 through 10, Haman, terrified, attempted to plead for, plead for his life in the absence of the king as he went out and he went into the palace garden in rage. And as he returned, Haman fell across the couch where Esther was and was charged with attempting to seduce the queen before the king and was hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. Wow. All our little plans that we have, the people have for evil, God will hang them on their own gallows. As I look to the corruption of our nation today, I mean corrupt, wicked people in the Congress, in the Senate, Wicked people, politicians, and they think they're so smug, they forget, or they're totally ignorant that God's on the throne, and nothing escapes him, absolutely nothing. In verse 8 through 10 there, Ahasuerus consequently gave the house of Haman to Esther and was told of her relation to Mordecai. And the king gave the signet ring to Haman, now to Mordecai. Everything has turned. In chapter 8, verse 4, Esther pleaded with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, against the Jews. In verse 8 through 14 of chapter 8, Esther broke, she wrote and she sent out the decrees for the Jews to defend themselves. This is quite an accomplishment that God is bringing forth here. Esther pleaded for a second day of vengeance and it was granted in chapter 9, verse 13 through 14. That's how many were going to come and destroy all the Jews. Remember, the decree had been sent out to all the provinces, 127 or so. In chapter 9 there, verse 20 through 32, Esther, as well as Mordecai, legislated the two days to celebrate the Feast of Purim. Everyone, every year, all Jews, as commemoration, celebrated the defeat of Haman the Agagite. There, chapter 9, verse 20 to 32. It is the only feast, as I said earlier, along with Hanukkah, that is not a biblical feast, Demanded by God. Those are historical feasts. Here, Feast of Purim and Hanukkah. 
the miraculous provision of God of oil during the Maccabean period for the cleansing of the temple from Antiochus Epiphany when he slaughtered a pig on the altar. Okay? Mordecai was second to King Ahasuerus and served the people for good. Chapter 10, 1 through 3 says, When you have godly men on thrones and power and dominions, then the people have rest and the people receive benefit. Even when you have good moral pagans, they're moral, they're ethical, they're equitable. Society receives a benefit. It's just that men's hearts are bent towards evil. And power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When someone writes a story, they are the one in control, and regardless of how impossible the situation may seem, they can turn it around in the very next sentence or the next scene and make it turn out for good. This is the book of Esther. God is behind the scenes. He's in control. So the characters in Esther are used by God for his purposes. But never contrary to their will. Never. Let's finish up with the message of Esther since we've gone through the first one, two points. First, God deals with the compromise of his people to chasten, discipline, to teach them. If they would have returned to Jerusalem, they would not have encountered the danger. If people are worldly, they're going to add to their own hurt. I've known the Lord for 45 years. 42 of those 45 years I've been in ministry. I've seen many men who were used tremendously add to their own hurt. I've, had, I've seen people of God who sat in the very seats you have sitting right now destroy their marriages, throw their kids away, walk away completely from God. No one's going to tell me they weren't born again. If you have compromise, there must be a point of turning and trusting God as Esther to where you will say, if I perish, I perish. If we are proudful, the fate of Haman can be our own within time. If we are faithful like Mordecai, to not bow to the world, we will be protected and exalted by God. Secondly, God is sovereign and in control, though he is not acknowledged or seen. Ahasuerus or Xerxes reign again from 485 to 465 B.C. Ahasuerus in 483 B.C. dethroned the queen. Ahasuerus made his disastrous expedition to Greece and returned from his naval defeat at Salamis in 480 B.C. 
And Ahasuerus married Esther and became queen in the following years, seven years after his reign in the nine, in the 10th of January of 479 B.C., chapter 2, verse 16. The Jews were plotted against in the first month, April, in the 12th year of 473 B.C., chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, and five years and two months after his marriage to Esther. The counter-command written by Esther was issued in June of 473 B.C., just two months and ten days after Haman had given the order in April. Chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 8, verse 9. The Jews were delivered from Haman's edict in the 12th month on March of 473 B.C., the same month it was scheduled to take place. Chapter 9, verse 1. The entire ordeal encompassed 11 months from April to March, 473 B.C. The entire book of Esther covers 10 years from 483 B.C., the third year of Ahasuerus reign, to the 15th day of the 12th month of March, 473 B.C., the celebration of the Feast of Purim. If you look at the dates of chapter 1, verse 3, 917 and 919. And God is all behind all this. He's not seen. He's not mentioned. But he's all over it. Thirdly, God uses who he wills to bring about his will for the good of his people. God allowed Esther to be chosen queen. God allowed Esther to have favor before the king as she entered without being called or petitioned. God allowed Mordecai to discover the plot to assassinate the king. God allowed the plans of Haman to fall apart before his face. God allowed the Jews to see the protection of God in the hanging of Haman. God allowed Esther's petition to reverse the decree of Haman and the Jews to defend themselves. God allowed the promotion of Mordecai by King Ahasuerus being second to the king. God teaches us a simple principle in the book of Esther. Obedience can avert many dangers and problems. Though you might have the tendency to not obey. Wow. The word crisis is defined in the American Heritage Dictionary as the following. A crucial or decisive point or situation, a turning point. The Chinese character for crisis means two things, danger and opportunity. If we take hold of the crisis ourselves, we will be in danger. Esther chapter 1 to 5. If we allow God to work in and through the crisis for us, it will result in great opportunity. Chapter 6 to 10. The choice is ours. Whenever we're in crisis. And so the message of Esther is that God is sovereign and in control. What an incredible little book here. <laughs> What good lessons for life as we have studied Esther in these three ways.
The book of Esther reveals the hand of God. The characters in Esther are used by God for his purposes. And the message of Esther is that God is sovereign sovereign and in control all the time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. Pray, Lord, you continue to deal with our hearts and help us to obey you and to follow your lead. And, Lord, as we um, seek you, that we rest in you, and we realize that in the world we're going to have tribulation, but we're to be of good cheer because you have overcome the world. And that you will allow and sometimes use these fiery trials to purify us, to mold and shape us, and to tune our ear to you, Lord. And so we thank you for your goodness and for your faithful love towards us. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet, or maybe you're out there somewhere in the radio. If you don't know Christ, if you see yourself like Haman, doing your own thing. You think you've got it all wired. You just, you know, you're going to be a big payday. Well, it, it can turn real, real bad quickly. If you see yourself as a sinner, you can call on his name. You can ask him to forgive you. And he will forgive you and make you a child of God right now by grace through faith. A simple prayer of repentance is what God requires. Jesus says, if you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me, I will deny you. Repentance means a change of mind with a change of heart, recognizing you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from God. And that if you don't deal with your sin before you die, you will be separated eternally from God. But if you repent from your sin, he will give you a divine nature to be able to live in a way that pleases God. And when you die, you're instantly present with the Lord. This is the choice you're making. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.